This week, I was delighted to see a few crocuses in bloom outside the church. It was evidence that spring is around the corner, and I know it's been a relatively mild winter, but spring is always nice, and so is summer. And I know that spring is around the corner, not just because I can swipe up on my phone and see that April does come after March, and that is spring, but because every year when the daffodils poke out of the ground and the crocuses start to bloom, it means it's only a few more weeks until the weather gets warm, the days get long, and it's finally spring. They are perceivable scientific observations that by collecting observable data, you can make reasonable assumptions about what will happen in similar circumstances. When children go to school, they will learn this in the scientific method, whereby you try to control your variables to ensure that your conclusions are correct and repeatable. And this works very well in the natural world. That is the way we distinguish legitimate scientific research from checking to see if a groundhog sees his shadow or not. But does that method and that process work when it comes to God? Can we make reasonable assumptions about the Lord and what He will do next based on what we observe in the world around us? Is God any different from gravity and other forces of the universe that behave in an expected way? And if these circumstances happen again, we can expect God to do a similar thing. That's what our passage answers today in Isaiah. Is God like this, a natural process in the universe? Or is He the ultimate variable that we cannot control? So if you would, and you haven't done so already, open up your Bibles to Isaiah. We're beginning in chapter 44, verse 23, picking up where we left off last week. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 23 through 45, verse 13. That's page 719 on the Pew Bibles. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 23. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 22 of chapter 44, which showed us that God is different from all the idols that other nations and gods, people that other people worship, that He is very different from them. He is not something we can control instead of us making or creating Him. He created and made us. Here again we hear how God is so very different. Isaiah chapter 44 beginning in verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by Myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and make fools of diviners, 
who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before Him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before Him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form lightness, light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, Your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the One who formed Him, Ask me of things to come? Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we hear your word and we are so thankful. We are thankful that you do speak and reveal yourself through your word. 
we thank you that you have preserved it for generations. That it is your inspired word and we can trust it, O God. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts and minds open to understand today these words that have been read, O God. I pray that you would use me in spite of my own sinfulness and weakness to proclaim and to apply, to expound your word, O God, and to do so rightly. May the Spirit go forth with your word, O God, and so change us that we know you more and know that you alone are the Lord of heaven and earth. In Jesus' name. Amen. In our passage today, we have another week of God saying, I am different. I am distinct. I am unlike the gods of the other nations. And so we see initially there's a challenge. He challenges the understanding of the world and how they tend to understand God. And then Isaiah makes a very bold claim about God. After that, we see the consequence that if this claim is true, if God is who Isaiah says He is in these words, that means something very serious for us. So first, the challenge. Isaiah here challenges the normal way of thinking. He does that by challenging not just the way of the ancient world, but even our world today. See, in our modern world, we call this way of thinking naturalism. It is the understanding that the world can be explained by the natural processes in it, by ways that are explainable, measurable, and repeatable. Essentially, you can use the scientific method to study just about anything in how the world works. And you can expect your findings to continue to be true unless variables change. But that modern way that we tend to think in the world is not all that different from the time of Isaiah. Yes, they believed in many other gods, but those gods were supposedly in control of the natural forces of the world. Things like rain, fertility, and the planets. And so they would scientifically study and measure data to understand their world and to try and think through how these events might repeat themselves, how we can anticipate and predict the future. What makes the folks in ancient times a little bit different is they were just kind of weirder about how they went about their science. They're, they were astrologers, the forerunners of our horoscopes, who would track the planetary movements and cross-reference the alignment of the planets with whatever happened on those days. So that when those planets aligned in the same way again, they could flip back through their book and be like, oh, we can expect something like this to happen because the planets are aligned in this way. The same went for the process of divination. It was the slimy practice of opening an animal and examining its guts and looking for splotches and patterns on the entrails of the animals, on the vital organs. Yay. These people called diviners would regularly do this. Be like, oh, there's some spots there and extra stinky. Okay. And they would write that down 
And then whatever happened in that time period, they would write down next to it to know if they were to cut open another animal and see similar patterns, they could expect those things to happen again. It's really a bloodier version of the farmer's almanac, you know? And at this point, you're probably thinking to yourself, Pastor, why on earth are we talking about science? I thought it was Sunday morning. Because sometimes people think that we can predict and explain God in similar ways. If only we study science or astrology or divination or signs in our day, we will be able to anticipate what God is going to do. But the Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah saying that the Lord frustrates the signs of the liars and makes fools of diviners who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. The God of Israel is not a God who can be predicted because He is over and above the natural universe. God is supernatural. He is totally sovereign over everything. And so He frustrates the diviners, the forecasters, by acting differently. Acting in ways that are unexplainable. In ways that are unpredictable. He is not a personified force of nature. He is the one who made nature, and He would have you know He made it all by Himself. He forms light and creates darkness. And Isaiah wants people to know which God it is who does this. Throughout this part of Isaiah, we hear essentially the same phrase repeated again and again. I am the Lord. You'll notice in your English Bibles that the word Lord is in all caps, all capital letters. And whenever we see that in our English Bibles, it is replacing the Hebrew name for the Lord, which can be translated Yahweh or Jehovah. But Jewish people did not speak the name Yahweh or Jehovah out of respect for God. And so whenever they would come across those words of the name of God, they would say Adonai. The Hebrew word for Lord. And so our English versions pick up on this and translate God's divine name as the Lord. But it was his unique name, the God of Israel, Yahweh or Jehovah. He is saying, I am Israel's God and there's no other than me. I am Yahweh. The one who made everything. I am not to be confused with these other gods. This is my name. And I want to be known. That's a pretty bold claim. That the God of this little people of Israel and Judah has the one true God over all the universe and everyone else's gods are just nothing. How can we know that that's true? How can we know that that is true if we cannot measure God with these scientific methods in predictable ways? How can we use natural measurements on a supernatural being? Well, we can know because God announces beforehand what He will do. That is the central claim in this passage of Isaiah 
And when we think of prophecy, that's what we tend to think about. We imagine someone predicting something that is going to happen in the future. And not just, you know, the smart aleck who says, I think the sun's going to rise tomorrow. No. Predicting something unlikely is going to happen in the future. In other words, what God can do is God calls his shots. We see that in a similar but lesser way in the realm of sports, most famously with Babe Ruth. In the 1932 World Series, Babe Ruth was at bat and he raised his hand and pointed out towards the center field stands at Wrigley Field. And on the very next pitch, Babe Ruth hit a home run deep to center field. It was as if he was saying, that's where the next one's going. And he did. And it becomes the stuff of legend. My favorite example of that is uh, Larry Bird, the basketball player for the Boston Celtics. After winning the three-point shootout in 1986 and in 1987, in 1988, he walked into the locker room where his competitors all were, and he said to them, which are you playing for second? that's, That's awesome. He called a shot. He said, I was getting first. Larry Bird won the 1988 three-point contest, which is why that story is so awesome. And he won it on the very last shot. He shot it, and before it even went in the basket, he turned and held his finger up like this, knowing before the ball was even in the basket, it was going in, and he won. Now, if it doesn't go in, you look like an idiot. But man, if it does go in, that is real impressive. God is doing something even greater than that. It is not just a cockiness of his own skills, a boastfulness that I'm better than you. It is, watch this. I'm going to do this thing that you can't even imagine. And I'm going to tell you about it way before it happened. So in this passage, what did God predict that he was going to do? The Lord announces that he will raise up someone named Cyrus who will set the Jewish exiles free, allowing them to return to the promised land. The prophet Isaiah began his ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. That's what we see in Isaiah chapter 6. We know that Uzziah died in roughly 740 or 739 B.C., So that was the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, 740-739. And he prophesied at least through 700 B.C., maybe even into 680 B.C. We're not sure when he was done. The exile was still 100 years away when Isaiah is prophesying. And yet through Isaiah, God is already calling his shot, saying this is the guy who's going to bring you back from exile. And our Old Testament reading from Ezra 1 shows us the fulfillment of this amazing prophecy. That the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persian Empire in the year 539 B.C. by one general of Persia named Cyrus. Huh. Imagine that. And then one year later, in 538 B.C., seemingly out of nowhere, this pagan king of Persia says, Yahweh, the God of Israel and of Jerusalem, is telling me I should send his people back. He had no reason to do that. He wasn't getting anything out of this. 
There was no benefit. He wasn't trying to get votes. He's king. You don't need votes when you're king. And he does exactly what God said he would do. So well over 100 years before Cyrus issued that decree, the Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah, calling Cyrus by name, repeatedly saying, I call you by name, that everyone may know what I am doing. Not only is that a remarkable prophecy that is fulfilled, it is radically different from the way that God normally worked. See, when God saved His people in previous generations, He would raise up someone from within His people who knew Him, who had a vested interest in the salvation of Israel. Someone like Moses, or Samson, or David. And yet here, God uses a pagan king. It was a new thing that God was doing. Something that would spark questions like, Hey, y'all, what you making with this clay? That's kind of a weird thing you're making there. It was different. It was really different. And it was God showing that He is not bound to work the same way. He can do something new and different, showing His power not just over His own people, but over the kings of other nations. And so God wants His people to know His sovereignty over all things, that He alone is God. We see that throughout verses 3 through 7 there of chapter 45. That you may know that I am the Lord and there is no other God. Even though Cyrus does not know the Lord in a saving way, God wants him to know I'm the one that gave you victory over Babylon. I'm the one that inspired you to send my people home. And in verse 7, we read this awe-inspiring verse. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. But that gets a little scary. It means that God is not measurable or predictable. He is a variable that cannot be controlled in our equations of what to expect, be it a virus spreading around the world or a stock market fluctuating every day. He is something we cannot predict. He makes well-being and calamity. That even the suffering and hardships that we face are under His control. We are described as this clay pot in the hand of an almighty God. And as Americans, that humbles us because we prize individualism. Be who you want to be. And if we have objections to God's sovereignty, we need only look at verse 11. Will you, measly human, command me concerning my children in the work of my hand? It's as if God is saying, who are you to tell me what to do with my creation? Who are you to talk back to me? And so the sovereignty of God inspires a kind of fear in us. That who are we before a God like that? 
We're clay pots. We're nothing. Unless, unless he uses his sovereignty for our sake and for the sake of his people, which is exactly what verse 4 tells us. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you, Cyrus, by name. God doesn't just call his shot with Cyrus to show how impressive he is. He calls his shot because he wants his people to know, I will save you. It's already planned out. It will happen. I will do it for you. That even though God sent them into exile as a punishment for their sin, God will also bring them back as an expression of his grace. That the potter is not yet done with this lump of clay. He still has a plan for them. And that plan culminates in the greatest new thing that God had ever done. Jesus. See, many of the Old Testament prophets pointed to the need for a Messiah to come and save God's people. Isaiah is one of those prophets. But God's people expected something similar. What were all the other prophets like? Moses, you know, he did cool things. Samson was strong and mighty. David slayed Goliath and ruled as king and conquered enemies. Solomon was infinitely wise. They anticipated a charismatic warrior who would inspire a following and raise an army to restore the kingdoms of Israel and Judah as it was in the days of David and Solomon. They had no idea God was going to do something new. Something better than all of those things. Like them, but better And that new thing was the sacrificial death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In our New Testament reading, we see Jesus call his shot. Saying that all the prophets of the Old Testament say that I am going to die. To suffer and die. But after three days, I will rise again. He told his disciples this is what's going to happen. He did it multiple times. But they didn't understand It was too new. It was too improbable, too out there. How could God do that? How would that even make sense? It was only after Jesus rose from the dead, fulfilling that prophetic word, that they knew that this truly was the Messiah. Only then could they look back and see this wonderful new work that God had been doing through Jesus. Only then could they see that Jesus didn't die because he lost and the bad guys won. Only then could they see that his death was not just a tragedy to be fondly remembered. Only then could they see that Jesus gave up his life according to the definite plan of God for the salvation of his people. Only then could they see God's character in its entirety. His holiness and justice in His wrath against sin on Jesus on the cross and His faithful love and forgiveness to His sinful people, saving them through the cross and giving them hope even in death through Jesus. For us today, we have the Word of God. 
We get to look back and see all these ways God announced beforehand what he would do. We have the fulfillment here for us to trust God's word and to know that he alone is the God over all things. But we also have some prophetic words to hold on to. God has called yet another shot that we are waiting to go through the basket. For Jesus said when he ascended into heaven, I am coming back soon. That may seem improbable to us. That someday the Son of God is going to descend out of the clouds, a trumpet will sound, and the natural world as we know it will stop. That day after day, all of the things that we do with work and life, the things that seem to be going on forever without end will all Halt. And Jesus will judge the living and the dead and make his kingdom in its fullness among his people. God has said that is going to happen. That the natural world will one day be interrupted and Jesus will be with us as king. And on that day, on that day when that prophecy is fulfilled, everyone will know that He is the Lord. And there is no other. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You make known Your reality to us through Your Word. We thank You for how You speak generations beforehand about what You will do. And as we look all through the Bible, we see promises yet unfulfilled in their entirety and we long for their fulfillment. We long for Jesus to come again soon because on that day all the world will know. Lord, thank You for helping us to know now by faith. We long for the day when our faith will be sight. And so we pray that You would strengthen our faith in Your Word seeing how You are sovereign over all and we pray, O God, that You would please send Jesus back soon. It is in His name we pray. Amen.